0: from MIT Technology Review, I'm Elizabeth Bramson-Boudreau. And this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. This episode is sponsored by ISC squared, with more than 140,000 global members. ISC squared is the world's largest nonprofit membership association of certified cybersecurity professionals. It offers a portfolio of credentials that are part of a holistic, programmatic approach to security. Later in the program, I'll speak with Jennifer Manella, the chairperson of the ISC Squared Board of Directors, about the quest to create more roles for women in the field of cybersecurity. But first, we've got a special conversation with Marissa Meyer. Of course, Meyer was frequently in the news as the CEO of Yahoo from 2012 to 2017, But for many years before that, she was at Google, helping to build the company's core search and advertising platforms. She spent a long time at the center of the Silicon Valley whirlwind. We wanted to ask her how things have changed over that time, particularly for women leaders in technology. We ended up talking about the thinking behind Meyer's 2013 decision to put an end to Yahoo's fairly permissive policy around working from home and how she dealt with the blowback from that decision on social media and the technology press. So here's my conversation with Marissa Meyer. If you think back to when you first became CEO of Yahoo, or even further, perhaps back to 1999 when you started at Google, um, what do you think now has changed for women technology leaders?
1: Uh, it's interesting. It's easy for me to put myself back at Google because my current office is the same place I started my career. So I'm back in the original Google office now with my new company. Um, but I think that things, some things have definitely changed for the better. So I tend to be more of the optimist. So I think that there are, are things that have changed for the better. Most notably that technology has come a lot further and it's a lot more integrated day to day in society, especially the internet, um, and so, you know, when I was starting out, I was an oddity in computer science. And women still may be the minority in computer science, but I was an oddity to the point where, you know, a lot of my schoolmates had, you know, been programming since they were 11. You know, you ended up being a programmer if you were like, you know, a teenage boy really into video games and science fiction, and I didn't fit that mold. And I think a lot of those stereotypes, because technology has become so much more pervasive and people now understand the kinds of opportunities and applications that can be built uh, on the internet, um, I think that you know, people have a much better understanding of how becoming a software engineer has, can ultimately have an impact in what you're doing day to day. And that helps a lot with people entering computer science overall, both men and women.
0: I'm interested in leadership and sort of the topic of female leadership, and I'm particularly interested in talking to you about this. Um, You know, I've read a lot of articles and a lot of characterizations of um, probably fairly and and unfairly of your leadership, and I'm super interested in that challenge between being clear, direct, and authoritative, and on the other hand, being quote-unquote appealing. Um, and I am, I'm very interested in what your point of view is on that and how how you've been able to maneuver it and kind of manage it in your own career.
1: Sure, I, I will start off by saying I haven't read the same articles you have because I make a point of not reading them. And so in my case, I think it's really important to be authentic-hmm. Uh, and true to yourself in terms of what you think the right thing to do is in a particular moment, I think people respect that type of leadership. And while certainly some of those moves might be misunderstood outside, to me, I always have looked at how does the organization respond to those moves? A classic example for, um, it doesn't really germane to the overall business of Yahoo, but it's the work from home thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Outside, widely misunderstood. Um, You know, I became the enemy of work from home. Um, in I wasn't trying to make a big, you know, political statement about the way that people want to work in the future and the future of workforces. I was just trying to say, look, if we're going to try and turn this company around, you know, something like 10 to 20 percent of the people are a bit out to lunch. Yep. Um, and interestingly, it wasn't even people who were formally working from home. It was people who were informally working from home. Right, like just not showing up to work that day because it was raining or there was a lot of traffic and they were like okay I'll just work from home today Um, we had little stickers and magnets you could hang up in your cube that said working from home and um, you know that you could just put up at a moment's notice and I was actually approached by about 30 different people inside high performing employees at Yahoo who said look you've brought all this energy back and we're trying to turn the company around and once a week I have to stop and Call this poor performer on my team who doesn't bother to come into the office and catch them up on what's going on in my project, and it's just not that much fun. That wasn't the culture we wanted moving forward. That this was Yahoo's moment, and it was all hands on deck, and the people there understood it. So I think it's a it's a it's both a poor example, but also a good example of a time where I didn't I wasn't driven by the external misconceptions of what was motivating that leadership decision. I was more motivated by what was happening inside the company, and inside the company I think it was very well understood and actually desired that we make that change. And I also feel that, you know, for me I focused less on the personal appeal Mm. of, you know, do you want to work for me and more on, you know, I'm trying to lead an organization, trying to build a company, trying to foster a culture. And, you know, is that something that is appealing and attractive to employees?
0: Um, so I have a lot of um, understanding of the point of view that you're, you know, where you're coming from, and particularly given the turnaround challenges you faced. Um, I am interested in, you mentioned that you, you know, I think probably rightly, smartly so, don't look at the, I haven't read all the articles I have. But how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, what's your, what's your coping mechanism for sort of um, shutting out the voice's from the you know peanut gallery and I'm just really interested in how you how you cope
1: well in 2008 um, I had gotten engaged it was a great and fun time in my life unfortunately for Silicon Valley Gawker had come to town and had created a blog about us uh, and there were various characters that made appearances on there and unfortunately I was one of them and it was you know it was a caricature of me it wasn't Me um, And, you know, they wrote really awful articles. And I was like, you know, wait, it's one thing to criticize my product decisions, my career, my business thoughts and leadership. But it's a whole nother to, you know, kind of go into the personal realm uh, where, you know, my fiance wasn't it wasn't a public person and things like that. And I I talked to some people that I was at Google at the time. I talked to some people at Google about how bothered I was and someone just said, you know, you don't like it. And, you know, I thought they were going to be offered to like, you know, call it Cocker or try and like get them to calm down. I'm not even sure that was possible. Um, and they just said, just stop reading yeah. it. And I was like, look, that that's impossible. Like I'm a leader. My team is reading it. Sometimes I need to respond to what they say. And then they re- they kind of pushed it a little further and they said, do you? Mm-hmm. And it made me really think like, do I need to read it? Does it actually make me a better leader? And I came to the conclusion that no, because a lot of times when they were wrong, it was just a waste of energy to internalize that. And in the cases where they were right or partially right, it caused me sometimes to do things differently, hang on to an idea that they lauded as really, really good and not even just Gawker, but other other media sources. You know, someone says, wow, what a smart move, what a smart acquisition, <laughs> Right. And you hang on to it more. Someone criticizes it and it makes you more likely to second guess yourself. And I realized that I didn't think ultimately a lot of those things were helpful. So from that observation on, so at the end of 2008, I really did stop reading, you know, the word for word Mm -hmm. things written about me, both positive and negative online and in the media. That isn't to say that I'm not aware of that. I just feel that. You know, one of the reasons that criticism hurts in most cases is because some part of it is Mm -hmm. true. might be 1% true, might be 100% true. And, you know, I feel like if you're going to weather those criticisms and you're going to sift through what matters versus what doesn't matter, it's always nicer to hear it synthesized by someone who loves you or someone who at least is invested in you. And so, you know, um, there's, you know... Work from home happened, and my husband came to me and said, um, "You know, I know you did this thing at, at Yahoo that you thought was necessary for the work culture, but it's 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 getting kind of a lot of pickup out in the <laughs> out in the Twitter sphere." And I was like. What do you, what do you mean pickup? What do you mean like, a lot? I was like, was like <laughs> I, well, I was like well, I was I was like I was like look this is like an internal decision for Yahoo and it was obvious and necessary, and and he's like well people are taking it in a different direction about like whether or not you're in favor of work from home at all and whether or not this is a commentary on working mothers and I was like what, but even just having him give that more gentle, but eventually thorough as I ask more questions, analysis of what was going on, and then talking to our PR department, who of course had read all the articles and then synthesized it down to some of the core you know, issues, is more helpful. So you mentioned
0: that your new company is in the same space as Google started, and it's called Limi Labs. According to your website, you're working on consumer applications enabled by AI. Yes. Um, And it's a tech incubator. I don't know how much you can tell us, but uh, whatever you can tell us, would you?
1: Sure. Um, We're a tech incubator in more of the old school train of thought. We're not an investment firm, so we're not investing in other people's startups or finding teams to invest in. We We have a series of ideas that we'd like to explore, applications we'd like to build. Some of them are theses that we could actually base a product line around. Um, and so we've worked on hiring very capable engineers who could work on any range of products and, um, and have been staffing them to start to build these products. That said right now, um, we look much more like a traditional startup because we're working mm-hmm. on our first idea, um, it's become fairly well-developed and we want to bring it to market. So right now we're, you know, we're working on one idea. Eventually. Our view is that Lumi lab should evolve from being more of an idea incubator as opposed to a funding incubator, and become more of a classic startup uh, and eventually a company uh, where we have a line of products. Uh, and you know, we will we're by definition going to take a portfolio approach and have several products. Uh, some will be more successful than others, uh, but we want to build a company that has a portfolio of products and we think that a lab structure that does various related explorations um, is something that's important and we, my co-founder Enrique Munoz-Torres and I have always we've almost always worked in the consumer space so we're very interested in consumer uh, in particular web and apps uh, and uh, we my background is in AI um, and we when we look at artificial intelligence we see that a lot of people are working on the frontiers. Self-driving car, fa- cars, facial recognition, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of interesting and useful subcomponents in the quest, in those bigger quests that can be used on everyday problems. While we're trying to figure out, can a car drive itself? Can it learn how to drive? Can a computer learn how to recognize every human being on the planet? Those are incredibly important Quest incredibly useful quests, there are definitely some ethical questions that need to be addressed as we do all that in terms of b- developing the right type of technology. But in, all those, in, in that pursuit, there are certainly going to be breakthrough technologies that can help people every day. And we think that the current state of technology, which is uh, the technology, which is basically really excellent pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of patterns that people do on their phone every day with photos, with group communication, with events, with scheduling um, that are really mundane um, and repetitive. And the state of the technology today may not be good enough for self-driving cars yet. It will get there, but it probably is good enough to start being applied to these everyday problems and start saving people a few seconds or a few minutes a day.
0: Interesting. So. You were at Google at the beginning, you obviously took part in its exponential growth. Then you went to a huge digital media company. Now you're back in a kind of startup world. How do you compare those experiences and and, um, which sort of environment, startup or kind of larger more established corporation makes you happiest and and why?
1: Um, It's funny, but I can't pick a stage. Mm. You know, there's some people who love it when they're like, I love it when it's 10 people or less, like working in a garage. And there's some people who are like, oh, I just love it when you're a couple hundred people and you're, you know, starting to hit that inflection point of growth. And there's some people who are just like, look, if it's not operating at scale of thousands or tens of thousands of people and doesn't have, you know, hundreds of millions of users, like what's it all for? And, you know, I love every phase of that i love it when it's small and everyone's an individual contributor i like managing small teams i like managing large teams i love the impact and scale of running and being part of a big organization i love the growth i even love the challenges and for you know yahoo it, it was obviously um in you know it had was past its peak and in a different phase of the life cycle and i even loved the challenge of that um and all the, you know, to me, you know, working at companies of all phases, it's, it's almost always a design problem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? What's the, what is the products you want to bring to bear? What should, what should the structure of the company be? What do you want your recruiting approach to be? How do you organize people? How do you task people, right? Like, how do you figure out who's going to do what? It's, it's a design problem. It's a design yeah. problem with thousands of dimensions. And It's just one of the most interesting design problems you can possibly think about. And to me, you know i that's what i I love, and the design problems for every phase of a company are are equally interesting and equally compelling, and mm. so it's hard for you to say, like, "Oh, was there this one moment where if you could just stay in that moment forever, right linger in that linger a moment, that thou art so fair like i just have, I've never had that so let me ask when you think about
0: the generation coming behind you, um, folks who are um, more junior in their careers, what are the things that you think about um, to make sure there are better opportunities available for women in technology, particularly in leadership roles?
1: Uh, I think that the, the core way I focused on is in creating opportunities uh, and also in opening up oper- you know, focused recruiting To really make sure that underrepresented groups get represented. So two things, like one of my classic examples is I ran a program at Google for 10 years that remains one of the most successful rotational management development programs in Silicon Valley, and it's called the Associate Product Manager Program. And it really started out of necessity. We just couldn't hire enough experienced PMs at Google. And we needed a different type of PM, one who was much more technically savvy and could really talk the talk and walk the walk with Google engineers. And so I started hiring top computer science graduates right out of undergrad and giving them a lot of responsibility, right? Like we had one APM who I think a year out of school was running a billion dollar business line for Google. Um, and you know where they we had, you know there's another that like was basically the founding product manager for Gmail mm-hmm. um, One was the founding product manager for Google Maps uh, they did amazing um, amazing work and by growing that program it meant that you know we had a lot of opportunities for young people and I think um, you know, if you look at that program, it has done a great job for new grads, regardless of gender, but it's been particularly attractive for women, you know, possibly in fact that as its leader, I was a woman. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's uh, a number of, of really terrific women who've come out of there and like notably like Avni Shaw, who mm-hmm. now heads up Google's education efforts Um, and has also held large roles on Chrome and Android. Uh, Meena Radmakrishnan, who went through the program and later became the first product manager at Uber. Um, There's just, you know, there's a lot of terrific APM alumni all across the board, um, but particularly women who've really risen to leadership. And I think that, you know, I think literally providing the direct opportunities Mm. is helpful. The other thing that we noted at Google, and I've had success with, without, throughout my career, is that um, we had a point early on at Google, and I think it's been well-documented, where we had made 16 in- offers to ma- male engineers in a row. And Larry said, when he signed the 16th one, he said, you know, if we get to 20, I'm going to stop signing offers until you bring me women. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that got that got the recruiters' attention. And then of course two more men got hired. and so then they were like, and then the pressure's on yeah, in a row. <laughs> right. And now the recruiters are like, well, wait, like we're not going to be able to like do our jobs in two more hires if we don't sort this out. And they were like, well, look, Larry, like you, you aren't serious about this. You, you can't be this unreasonable. It's not like you're gonna stop hiring people into your startup that clearly needs to grow. Um, if we can't find women, he's like, No, I'm serious about this. And then he was like, They were like, Well, we just, we can't, we're, we're hiring everyone we can find. We've hired a few. You know, they were, he would, refer, they'd refer to me and John Fitzpatrick and a few other people. And, um, and Larry just said, How many recruiters are dedicated to finding technical women? And they said, um, None. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have an idea. Why don't you just put one? We've got like five technical recruiters. Why don't we just have one of the five focus on recruiting technical women and see what happens? And the answer is we went and found like two more great women to hire. And then he was like, OK, what happens if you put two women on it? Right. And they're like, oh, now we can actually find four good technical women a month. And it turns out recruiting is just linear and it really depends on what you focus on.
0: I mean, that's about basically saying it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to change from the top um, or the hiring manager, at the very least, um, in order to actually see the the change, because of course for the for the recruiters, they're just they're just trying to meet the brief.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say you know, yes, it does come from the top, but it's it's really an issue of emphasis and priority. Yeah, and those are driven, you know, by the leaders of the organization. But I I have found if you put in, if you make it clear this is a point of priority and an emphasis suddenly things get a lot easier because focus helps.
0: Well, so thank you very much, Marissa. And I I do appreciate your time and your candor and your perspective. And you've given me some things to think about uh, for my own leadership. So thanks.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you so much.
0: We'll wrap up this episode with a conversation with Jennifer Manella. She is the chairperson of ISC Squared's Board of Directors as well as the Vice President of Engineering and Security for Carolina Advanced Digital. She's an advocate for the growth of women in the field of cybersecurity. ISC Squared has done research showing that women make up 20 to 25% of the current total of cybersecurity professionals. Jennifer tells us how the landscape is changing and what the industry needs to do to achieve better parity. So, I understand that ISC Squared is a nonprofit association that trains and certifies information security professionals. Can you tell us a little more about why that's important and the kinds of jobs that ISC Squared members do and what kinds of training you all provide?
2: I'm going to start with answering the first part of your question, it's the why that's important. And I I think it's important because our mission is very different, right? Our mission is um, inspiring a safe and secure cyber world. And so, that starts, of course, with the professionals that are working in the space in the industry, and it's everything from your security professionals that are doing risk and compliance and you know policy and the more paperwork side of things, um, to the people that are very hands-on, uh, network admins, uh, system admins, um, even penetration testers, um, auditors. Um, so it's it's pretty much across the board with people that are that are touching technology because. Cybersecurity is so pervasive these days in everything that we do. The other piece is that a certificate program, among other things, actually validates experience. And so that's different than a lot of the other programs. So we're, we're not just training somebody, we're validating that they have that knowledge.
0: We've been talking in this, uh, in this episode about women in technology so, can you draw a picture for us um, around what it looks like for women professionals in information security? And maybe partly looking at the percentage of ISC squared members that are women?
2: Yeah. Uh, and well, okay, so let me start by saying F- ISC squared has something like 150,000, uh, more than 150,000 members across. 130 to 150 different countries. But if we just kind of talk about women for a minute and and bite off something we can we can chew, you know, the numbers aren't aren't terrible. Um we're we're looking at like 20 to 25% of our our industry population being um, being women. And that's, you know, is that the ideal, you know, warm fuzzy feeling of 50-50? No, but it's probably a lot better than most people realize. So I think we're, we're treading and and trending in the right direction. Um, We're also kind of rethinking how we describe or define what an information security professional is, because you don't have to have security in your title to make you, to to mean that you're you're a security professional, right? There's so many other roles um, of technologists um, and and risk and compliance professionals who have a security role, but they don't have a security title. And so we're, we're kind of acknowledging that at this point.
0: There's a lot of evidence that, generally speaking, women-led companies uh, generate higher profits than those that are run by men. There are fewer of them, but they tend to generate a higher profit. Um, And women-led workplaces are certainly seen by employees as being more purpose-driven, more equal, more engaging places to work. Do you think those arguments also extend to cybersecurity? So in other words, is a diverse workplace better at maintaining cyber safety or making sure everyone's involved in security?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a can of worms right there. So I think to <laughs> to work backwards, there's definitely proven value in, in diversity um, in any team, in any team composition, at, at any level, any organization, anywhere. Um, so I, there's there's no dispute there now. To say that, you know, organizations that have women um, at, at the top levels of leadership outperform, you know, organizations with men at the top, I I think that's, you know, I think our knee-jerk reaction to jump up and go, you know, yay, girl power is, I think we have to kind of, that's a little bit naive. And we have to kind of peel back and say, well, you know, maybe what's cause and what's effect here? If, there, right. if there's a female at the top, is that because the organization already had a corporate culture that was a little more... Geared um, towards diversity and a little more open and accepting. And that's how we arrived and and therefore, that woman at the top is the effect, not the cause. Right. So going back down into how that ties into cybersecurity, certainly, you know we're dealing with different types of attacks and threats on a daily basis, and looking at those things. I mean, it's really about solving puzzles. And the more people you have tackling a problem, And looking at it from from different angles and different lenses um, based on their experience, whether it's gender diversity or ethnic diversity or just a skill diversity, there's just tons of value in that. And we've we've seen that and proven that over and over again.
0: I I understand that you're known for promoting a mindfulness-based leadership and a meditation approach in information security. And I am super interested in hearing more about that. Um, Can you tell us about that and what that what that consists of?
2: I absolutely can. Yeah, it's something that I'm I'm very passionate about. Um, I've also found that a a lot of other people in this industry have found, uh, you know, some some healthy path forward for themselves. Uh, You know, for me, it stemmed from um, something as silly as uh, having a bizarre kind of heart arrhythmia and trying to get that under control through, Mm. you know. Taijiquan, Tai Chi, and other modalities like that, that that led me into that at an early age. Um, but the results were just um, very noticeable. And, you know, I started kind of reaching out and realizing that, hey, there's a lot of people in this industry that could benefit. Um, so you, you hear a lot, if, if people pay attention to the cybersecurity world, you'll hear a lot about, you know, burnout. Average tenure of a CISO is quite short compared to other executives at that level, uh, peer executives, and in other parts of the organization. Um, uh, f- unfortunately, we have a suicide problem as well, mm. um, and and so people, you know, started talking about these things, and it was great that we were talking about it. And I thought, well, how do we take these things that have worked for for other people, and you know, start a- applying some of this, and just make our jobs. And our experience here, you know, again as humans, um, more pleasant and more and more productive. Um, and you know, definitely, I think mindfulness is one of those things. It's I kind of feel like it's the little black dress. Um, <laughs> it's not a <laughs> it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve all the problems magically. It's not a magic wand. But there's definitely I think pieces of mindfulness that you know people can can take what works for them. It, and and apply it in different ways and i think there's there's some benefit um in some way to anybody who's willing to try it at any level personal professional etc and specifically in cybersecurity you know let's be real I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty happy you know giggly fun fun person and very playful but we definitely have moments where in the industry there's a, there's quite a bit of of ego um there's an insatiable thirst for conflict at times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm all about healthy conflict, but I mean, sometimes people just stir stuff up and we start to look at that and say, what's driving that behavior? You know, why are we interacting with each other in an unhealthy way like that? Um, Sometimes it's, you know, just very competitive and and angry. um, And we start to to peel that back and, and realize, hey, sometimes we just need to work on ourselves a little bit. And we just feel very disconnected, maybe even from ourselves. And so, We brought these kinds of conversations to large industry conferences and you know rsa and um and such like that and including isc squared security congress Um, so we're starting to have the conversation we're starting to see things like meditation zones and areas or yoga um yoga practices at these events Um, and and there are several people that have come out and, and said hey you know i've tried x y and z and that's helped me and so we have a little bit of movement momentum in that direction.
0: Hmm, interesting. Is there a connection in your mind between fostering mindfulness and creating a more inclusive or diverse workplace?
2: Uh, definitely. Definitely. I think there's a connection between mindfulness and diversity inclusion. And um, yeah, gosh, we could probably write a book on this. But let's just pick a couple things here. I mean, just by virtue of that i mentioned responding instead of reacting just taking that moment to pause and, and think through something instead of shooting somebody's idea down um, or, or getting angry you have an opportunity there and i think in 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 an environment in a culture where there's communication open communication trust a lack of fear um, we have an opportunity there because people are comfortable they're comfortable speaking up they're comfortable sharing or com- comfortable bringing ideas that might be new or outside the box Um, And not feeling like, you know, there's so much risk associated with that. Will they be judged?
0: What a pleasure. And um, thank you so much, Jennifer. I appreciate
2: it, Elizabeth. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bramson-Boudreau. I'm the CEO and publisher of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You can find us in print, on the web, at dozens of live events each year, and now in audio form. For more information, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. The producer is Wade Roush, with help from Jason Sparapani and Martha Leaves. Special thanks to our guests, Marissa Meyer and Jennifer Manella. And thank you to our sponsor, ISC Squared, inspiring a safe and secure cyber world. To learn more, visit www.isc2.org. That's ISC, the number two, dot org. Thank you for listening.